Hey everybody, uh, I had already recorded an intro for the second episode in this series, but I felt that uh, I would be misguided if I didn't give a huge thank you to everybody who has given me such an overwhelmingly positive response uh, to the first episode. And whether you're listening because you're, you're genuinely interested in the future of mental health therapies, or you felt compelled to listen because I'm your friend, or you really just wanted to learn something, whatever the reason is, I deeply, deeply appreciate you tuning in to listen. When I posted around on all my social media, I really didn't expect more than one or two people to listen to it, and, and I was prepared to be okay with that. So thank you once again, and uh, I really hope you enjoy this episode uh, and the unfortunate double intro that you're going to have to go through. So thank you. Hi, everyone. I thought today it would be interesting to explore the history of Ibogaine and 18MC and essentially how we got to the present day, where MindMed is now using 18MC in clinical trials because it's always important to look back and understand the history of drug development to guide where we are going with the future. As we discussed briefly in the previous episode, Ibogaine is a derivative of a plant called Tabernatha iboga, which is native to Western Africa. Traditionally, Ibogaine is used as a spiritual aid. Western African indigenous peoples use Ibogaine in traditional tribal or cultural practices and ceremonies, such as ritual dances, or to heighten focus when hunting. It has been defended as a very important part of Western African culture. Most traditional herbs or medicines used in ceremonies and ritual practices have some very powerful psychological and psychotherapeutic effects, so it seems logical that these compounds would be a good starting point to develop medications to treat mental health disorders. In a similar sort of vein, ayahuasca, a hallucinogenic entheogenic compound used in traditional South American practices, is being investigated in the treatment of depression and anxiety disorders, and mescaline or peyote, an entheogenic compound used in traditional Mexican and Native American practices, is being investigated for use in addictions and depressive disorders. Although ibogaine has been around for hundreds of years and has been used in traditional practices, 18MC has been synthesized only recently, within the last couple of decades. Dr. Stanley Glick, who I had mentioned in the previous episode, is one of the researchers responsible for the production of 18MC in the late 90s and is one of the pioneering authors regarding much of what is known about it. Throughout the early to mid-2000s, 18MC was studied for a number of disease states. The big ones that we are going to examine are its anti-addictive effects and its ability to mitigate opioid withdrawal but it has also seen some more recent study in a disease called leishmaniasis, and it appears to have modest effects in attenuating that disease state. However, I'm not going to be discussing that in this episode. I think it's important to note that Dr. Glick is one of the co-founders of MindMed, and he is the director and chair of their scientific advisory board. So moving forward, MindMed is going to have his expertise and history with 18MC to build on and to help guide the company into the future. I think I should also take this time to note that I am in no way affiliated with Mind Medicine or the production of 18MC. My goal with this series is only to shed some light on the history and future of experimentation with psychedelic compounds and what implications they may have on future practices with mental health. Throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, ibogaine had been shown in many different studies to be a powerful agent in reducing the physiological and psychological aspects of addiction to opioids like heroin, stimulants like cocaine or amphetamines, alcohol, and nicotine, which are all still common vices in today's society. While the therapy was powerful, it was not without drawbacks. Ibogaine elicited several serious adverse effects in lab rats, including lowered heart rate, full-body tremors, and degradation of Purkinje fibers in the cerebellar tissue of the brain at higher doses. 
all of these adverse effects are quite serious and obviously not something that we would be comfortable exposing patients to. In the 70s, the FDA decided that due to these adverse effects, as well as its hallucinogenic and stimulatory properties, that ibogaine would become a Schedule I substance along with many other, more popular psychedelic compounds like psilocybin or LSD. This effectively prevented the public from using the compound legally and highly discouraged researchers from using ibogaine in clinical or preclinical testing due to the difficulty they would have in securing and administering it. But despite the roadblocks set forth by the government, it was pretty clear that ibogaine had serious potential in attenuating substance use disorders. Research was then directed at modifying the ibogaine structure in order to produce a compound that didn't have adverse, hallucinogenic, or stimulatory properties so as to remain unscheduled by the FDA while retaining the anti-addictive effects that ibogaine had demonstrated. Several ibogaine derivative compounds were then produced by the University of Vermont, including R-ibogamine and R-coronaridine. These compounds lacked the full-body tremor associated with ibogaine use while retaining ibogaine's anti-addictive properties. However, they were not selective solely for addictive compounds. They also reduced the amount of water, which was used as a control compound, that lab rats self-administered. It seemed that the researchers were very close to a breakthrough therapy. Following the relative success of R-coronaridine, Dr. Glick and his associates modified the structure to produce 18-methoxycoronaridine, or 18-MC, which we know today. This episode will examine three of Dr. Glick's earliest papers regarding 18-MC. All three papers will be listed in the description of this cast should anybody want to give them a look. To properly introduce the contents of the paper, I had to do more digging than I'd initially anticipated. The 2000 publication made me ask the question, how did the researchers condition rats to become addicted to morphine? This led to a 1996 publication by Dr. Glick, which made me ask the equally frustrating question, how many times can he cite that the procedures are outlined in a previous study? The answer, unfortunately, was at least once more in a 1991 publication by, you guessed it, Dr. Glick. Thankfully, in this paper, a reference was made to a 1965 publication by Carlson, which described the process in full. The use of a method called fixed interval scheduled reinforcement was employed. In this method, the rats are trained to press a bar to administer a given substance, whether that be water, morphine, or cocaine, at specified time intervals through an IV tube implanted into the jugular vein. Initially, the response rate is low as the rats do not fully comprehend the process, but as the behavior is reinforced, the bar pressing becomes much more consistent until the rat is effectively conditioned to self-administer a given compound as often as allowable. Naturally, the rats given water do not self-administer at every available interval, while the rats given an addictive compound tend to self-administer much more often. Introduction of a trial compound was generally performed once baseline self-administration rates had stabilized, usually within two weeks or so. Therefore, any alterations to this conditioned response should theoretically be attributable to the intervention being introduced by the researchers. Before we examine the paper published in 2000, we need to look a little further into the past, before 18MC had even been synthesized. In 1991, Dr. Glick had begun investigating ibogaine as a potential treatment for opioid use disorder by observing what happened when morphine-addicted rats were given the drug. The rats were first conditioned to self-administer 0.04 milligrams per kilogram of morphine sulfate intravenously by pressing a bar to deliver the drug, as described before. 
this dosing is generally considered to be high enough to induce addictive behavior. Following stabilization of self-administration rates, ibogaine was then administered into the peritoneum either 15 minutes prior to scheduled self-administration time or 5 minutes afterwards. These pre- and post-session dosing regimens were intended to minimize the rat's association of the injection needle being conditioned to not press the bar. Doses ranged from 2.5 to 80 milligrams per kilogram. Additionally, 40 milligrams per kilogram of ibogaine was administered to rats conditioned to self-administer water to serve as a control population. On average, there were eight rats in each dose group of the study. Incredibly, doses of 10, 20, 40, and 80 milligrams per kilogram of ibogaine reduced the morphine self-administration rates of the rats by between 40% with the lower dosing and 90% with the higher dosing. These results also proved to be statistically significant reductions compared to baseline administration rates. Even more interestingly, these reductions in self-administration lasted for an average of one to two days post-ibogaine treatment, long after the drug was theorized to have left the body. Two of the rats, affectionately named 9IBO2 and 64IBO8, were particularly notable, having self-administration reductions a staggering four weeks post-intervention. So was this the breakthrough study that the researchers had anticipated? Well, it was hard to say. One of the largest issues in interpretation became why exactly ibogaine had lowered self-administration rates. While it may have been true that the drug could work as intended, it may have also been true that full-body tremors, an unfortunate side effect often induced by the ibogaine, could have physically prevented the rats from pressing the self-administration bar. This theory was supported by the control group, as rats given ibogaine in this group also spontaneously stopped self-administering water, which would not have been anticipated if the drug was the only factor involved. Both pre- and post-session administration showed no large differences, indicating that the rats did not seem to lower self-administration rates as a conditioned fear response to being poked with the injection needle. While it was clear that there were many questions yet to be addressed, the promise of the therapy had been shown and further study was clearly warranted. Replicating his study design from 1991, Dr. Glick performed the first investigation of 18MC in a 1996 publication. On average, six rats made up each dose group of either 10, 20, or 40 milligrams per kilogram of intravenous 18MC or a saline solution for the control group. Again, just as with ibogaine, all doses showed statistically significant reductions in the self-administration of morphine and cocaine, with results lasting for two days post-infusion on average, but for as long as three weeks in some of the rats. Rats which were not sensitive to the effects of ibogaine were redosed at weekly intervals and tended to become responsive after the third injection of the drug. Only one rat of the 18 tested showed no improvement after three weeks of redosing. Importantly, there was no decrease in the self-administration of water in any of the 18MC dose groups as there was in ibogaine, indicating specificity for addictive substances. The trial also effectively demonstrated that 18MC at doses as high as 100 mg per kilogram, two and a half times the highest dose used in the study, did not induce any tremor activity in the rats, helping to rule out the hypothesis from the first study that the rats were physically incapable of pressing the self-administration bar due to uncontrollable tremor. As if this wasn't enough, the brains of the rats, which had 18MC administered, both as a single dose and with repeated dosing, did not show any signs of Purkinje fiber degradation, which had been observed in rats treated with ibogaine. 
The results were excellent, but what was occurring in the brains of the rats that would lead to these changes? Dialysis probes in the brains of the rats indicated lowering of dopamine levels in the nucleus accumbens, the pleasure center of the brain responsible for feeling good in response to pleasurable stimuli. Other researchers pointed towards NMDA receptor antagonism as the primary mechanism in attenuating addiction. The mechanism remained vague, although the widely accepted theory became that 18MC actually increases the sensitivity of the brain to morphine or cocaine, and the response of reduced self-administration was a natural counter to this effect, a theory which has its own troubling implications to consider. In addition, the extended effects of 18MC were theorized to occur due to an active metabolite similar to the mechanism of ibogaine and its active metabolite noribogaine. With this fairly robust data and results from other similar trials involving alcohol and nicotine, Dr. Glick authored a paper in 2000 outlining the key takeaways from 18MC trials and how it compared to ibogaine. Comparisons were wholly promising, indicating that 18MC was at least as effective as ibogaine in reducing the self-administration of all tested drugs while not inhibiting the administration of water. Further, both ibogaine and 18MC were shown to have profound effects in mitigating signs of opioid withdrawal when induced with naltrexone. Tested rats exhibited far fewer symptoms of withdrawal such as weight loss, diarrhea, and specific movements like digging and teeth chattering than in the control group. This was yet another promising outcome which could have its own therapeutic applications. One of the only drawbacks presented was that both ibogaine and 18MC had the strange effect of enhancing erratic movements typical of chronic drug use. Once again, there was no single dominating theory regarding how exactly ibogaine or 18MC worked in the brain at a chemical level, although newer ideas surrounding serotonin and opioid receptors began to surface. However, it was generally agreed that 18MC reduced the positive reinforcement that addictive compounds tended to elicit in the brain through the dopamine system, breaking the cycle of use-reward. Despite the numerous questions still without answers, Dr. Glick and his team were confident that the drug should be moved into further testing for opioid addictions and withdrawal. Unfortunately, funding became scarce and the drug was put on the back burner for years until finally being picked up and dusted off by a company called Savant HWP, which would eventually be acquired by Mind Medicine in 2019. If you would like to hear more about Mind Medicine and the trials they are currently conducting with 18MC, I encourage you to listen to my first episode in this series. So in the midst of all these exciting results, one question comes to mind. Why should we care? In the last five years, there have been more than 15,000 opioid-related deaths in Canada alone, with nearly 20,000 hospitalizations. Every day, an estimated eight Canadians die of opioid overdose, and this number is as high as 128 in the United States. The National Institute on Drug Abuse estimates that nearly one in four patients being prescribed opioids for chronic pain misuse them, and nearly 10% of this group will develop an opioid use disorder. Four to six percent of these people will progress to heroin use. This trend is only getting worse and is showing minimal signs of slowing down. Currently, the best therapies for helping patients with opioid use disorders are, ironically, opioids. Therapies like methadone and buprenorphine seek to ward off the intense misery of opioid withdrawal, which can often last for weeks or months. Most people with opioid use disorders cite withdrawal effects as one of the hardest parts about quitting. 
If this therapy were successful, it would support millions of people worldwide in their journeys to recovery and sobriety and greatly reduce the strain that opioids have put on the healthcare system. The therapy seems to have fair safety and efficacy thus far, so we can only hope that these results will be replicated in the ongoing human trials and into the future. I look forward to following the updates and exploring the results as soon as they are available. If you wanted to read any of the studies I have mentioned, they will be posted in the description of this cast. Next time, I think I'll stray from 18MC and investigate ongoing trials with another emerging psychedelic therapy. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're staying safe wherever you are.